directors and you know. No housekeeping as far as I'm concerned. Are you both well? Are you up to talking or are you going to go into coughing fits halfway through that somebody <laughs> needs to relieve you? <laughs> That's about the only housekeeping I can think of. <laughs> I've been uh, adopting old housewives remedies that work like a dream. So I've been sucking up eucalyptus infused steam into my lungs and it's burnt them to a frazzle and they're perfect now. So we're ready to go. <laughs> Okay, I think let's kick off then. Let's kick off. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, welcome everybody again. Um, part two, you'll recall, I think two weeks ago, we, Adam and I, um, introduced topics of, of valuation, how to value businesses. Um, and you'll recall we dealt with effectively two, two methodologies. Um, there's a whole bunch and there's many gray areas and many ways of doing it. But um, the two kind of vanilla ones we chatted about were net asset values, how to, how to go about valuing businesses based on net asset value and what that means. And then also by way of earnings, um, earnings multiples. Okay. Um, and you'll recall we, we discussed that NAV is a balance sheet a uh, set of criteria and earnings is an income statement um, set of criteria. Um, and the two are very different methods of valuing and are used in, in two very different types of businesses ordinarily. Okay. Um, why we dealt with valuations initially was to lead into today's topic, and that is why are valuation methods relevant in drafting sale agreements, okay, whether they be sale of properties, which are rental enterprises, or sale of businesses as going concerns, other types of businesses, or share sale agreements. Um, uh, all of those you know, are, are transaction documents that record transfers of assets between parties. Um, and often the transfer process is over a long continuum of time, okay? And you recall what we discussed um, was a, a sort of an ordinary Transaction process could well take a year to 18 months sometimes between clients negotiating on their own, getting to attorneys, drafting, uh, settling, signing agreements, condition precedence, condition, con, sorry, condition precedence fulfillments, uh, and then closing the deal by way of delivering payment um, and handing over. Okay, so that, that is often a long timeline. And during that timeline, you'll recall we discussed that the, the assets are often changing, okay? So the subject matter of the sale is morphing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a live living animal. There's a, a financial and, and um, operational activities happening within the business as the parties go along and move towards a closing. And that must be that, that movement, that activity changes values or no, uh, most often, okay? Um, and that change in value may have to be recognized in the transaction itself by way of price adjusting, okay? So, so that's the context of what we are about today. Um, Adam's gonna kick off by dealing with, with 
prices and price adjusting through earnings and, and earnouts, for want of a better word. Um, and Adam can explain what that is, but um, in probably its simplest terms, it means that there's an adjust the adjustments in single or multiple adjustments in the future after takeover of the business based on the earnings of the business in the future. Okay, so effectively, um, it's often often uh, warranted future earnings, which if and when they're met or not met, there's adjustments. Um, so yeah, let's jump in. Um, Adam, over to you. Thanks, Mike. Um, thanks, Sean. Yeah, so, you know, as, as the lawyers on these types of matters, valuation is not something that really concerns you from a nuts and bolts point of view. You know, somebody gives you a purchase price and you slot it into a sale agreement. Um, you know, sometimes it's necessary for you to understand how the price was, was determined, you know, but for, for the most, you slot a number in and, and the payment terms. But, you know, where your job as the attorney on the matter does sort of start, particularly where you're acting for the purchaser, is to start thinking about what is the possible risks that your client faces and how are you going to mitigate those risks. So some of the simple things, you know, we, we know of just to preserve the integrity of what your client is buying and the price it's paying is things like putting in a due diligence clause where um, your client as the purchaser is entitled to conduct the due diligence in respect of the asset it's buying and, and has this walkaway right if it finds anything that doesn't justify the price that's being paid. Uh, we also put in something called a MAC clause, which stands for a Material Adverse Change Clause. And a Material Adverse Change Clause is, is normally a, it's a, normally a condition precedent, and it normally provides that if there's a happening of a certain event, uh, known or unknown, that you as the purchaser can walk away because it has changed. Um, the amount of money you're willing to pay for this. Now, a, a, a MAC clause can be as wide as, you know, geopolitical circumstances changing in the country, uh, increases in inflation, certain uh, currency fluctuations, or it could just be, you know, a turnover drop or a drop in profits. Uh, these are normally heavily negotiated but also a very good clause to have in because it gives you it gives you an opportunity as the purchaser to walk away if the numbers don't stack up anymore because of this long period that Mike speaks about between normally sort of shaking hands on the deal and, and, and implementing it. Um, the, 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 I guess the third way we protect ourselves is through warranties. Uh, so where things don't really stack up, you as the purchaser have certain claims against uh, the seller to sort of put yourself in an equalized position. So you may have overpaid for the business, but you prove back some of that um, through a warranty claim. Uh, and then you would have also seen in a, in a lot of uh, sale of business type agreements and even sale of rental enterprise agreement, there's this interim period warranties clause that from signature to the agreement until 
implementation of the agreement that the seller undertakes not to do certain things um, which could change the nature of the business. And it's very standard things. And the only thing you've got to really watch there is uh, particularly where the transaction requires the approval of the competition authorities that you don't give control over to the purchaser before um, the competition authorities have approved the transaction. And, and there's various ways and mechanisms and sort of how we control that. But I mean, that's sort of the, I just wanted to sort of sketch the, the tools at your disposal as an attorney to sort of start watching the price adjustments. Um, so due diligence, deal address change uh, and warranties, including interim period warranties. Uh, but what I actually wanted to spend some time out today is is with, with three concepts. Uh, the first one is earnouts, the second one's closing accounts, and the third one is lockboxes. So these are the most common price adjustment mechanisms you see in agreements. And and in a truth be told, they're probably some of the most complicated drafting you'll ever do as a lawyer. Um, depending on what the commercial terms of the clients are trying to are trying to record. Um, and, and, and they sort of more or less cover the same thing, but they they're conceptually very different. So let, let's start with the concept of an earner. An earner comes into play where a, a seller thinks its business is worth a certain astronomical amount because of future potential. And a purchaser is not willing to pay that price because it's basing its price on historic performance and therefore hasn't seen this astronomical future performance yet and is not willing to pay for it. Um, and sometimes in these circumstances, there's still a deal to be done even though the parties are, are so far apart. So what, what we do is we'll have a base price which is payable up front uh, on closing, which is what the buyer is willing to pay for this asset based on the historic performance. And then the purchase price possibly increases if the seller can deliver over a period of time on this future astronomical performance. Because, you know, sometimes you sort of, you, you, you sell a company just before it's about to take off. Um, but it can't take off because you actually need this purchaser to help you take it off, whether it's to inject uh, capital into the business, whether it's to bring some sort of skill and expertise, or even if it's just sometimes as simple as, as getting a certain B level to secure contracts. Um, so what we then do is we, we have this price adjustment mechanism that says, you know, if certain targets or hurdles are met, um, the purchase price increases, i.e. the purchaser will pay the seller on some future dates more money for this business. Now, I, I guess the most important thing for you as the lawyer when drafting these types of mechanisms is to ensure that what you're drafting is objectively ascertainable and is determinable even if there's a dispute. Um, so, I mean, if, if you take it in its simplest form, um, it, 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 it could be based on, let's say this company's been making a certain amount of profit consistently for the last five years, 
but the seller now thinks, you know, like for the next three years, that, that profit is actually going to double and they want to share in it. So what the agreement will say is if the audited profit for the first year after the effective date uh, is above a historic uh, performance, then a portion of that uh, will be paid to the to the sellers. And there would normally be a formula for that. And there's, there's no limit to, you know, whether it's one year, two year, three year, four years or five years. Um, from the from the seller's point of view, it's it's quite a it's quite a bit of a conundrum because you know normally when you're selling, you're exiting a business, but if you if you've got an earn up uh, pending, you know you'd want to stay in the business as long as you can to make sure that the seller when it takes over the business does all the right things to make sure that the profit numbers are hit so that you can get your earn up. And, you know, one of the biggest concerns for sellers in this is, is where purchasers start loading cost centers, uh, which results in a, in a drop in profits. You know, maybe the, the seller was running a very lean machine, um, you know, not fancy offices, uh, no bonuses and the like. And then suddenly a big corporate buys this and it sort of plugs into this machine and suddenly, you know, there's all these costs and expenses. So so you as the lawyer, it's, it's your duty to start thinking about where money can sort of go out the back door and put enough legal mechanisms in place in the agreement to make sure that that uh, doesn't happen. So, so in, in simple concept, that is what an earn-up is. It is. It is sort of staying along for the ride um, to, to make more money out of a deal by showing this company is actually worth more than um, the buyer thinks it is. The, the second mechanism is closing accounts. Um, sometimes they call it effective date statements or interim accounts. So normally what happens is when, when you buy a business, you, you've got to buy a business based on cold hard facts. Uh, you know, you can't sort of thumb suck a number and Use your gut instinct and and go for it because you know then it's a bit like gambling, right? So what you normally do is you base your valuations on the last audited financial statements. So I mean, let's just let's just take a practical example. Um, a company has a financial year end of um, December. Normally, it takes about three to four months after the year end for there to be audited accounts made available. And then, you know, you can make certain decisions based on that. What, what then happens is you see those audit accounts, you agree a price, and then you start negotiating agreements and, and, and fulfilling conditions. And then the next thing you know, you know, 10 months could have passed since those financials were produced. Um, and suddenly the question is, are those numbers still relevant to the price you're paying? But what we then do is we, we create this mechanism for an, an extraordinary audit to be done, which is an audit from 1 January, which is when the last audited financials ended, until the closing date. And you've got to agree who's going to pay for that and, and when it's going to be delivered. And then in basic terms, you, you, you have a formula that says if certain numbers change between the last audited financial statements and, and these uh, effective data accounts, 
if they go in the wrong direction, uh, that there's a price adjustment downwards. And more often than not, if there's an increase in the, in, in the numbers, that there's a, a price adjustment upwards. Um, it's normally audited, so um, it's, it's something that, that you can sort of, um, you know, depend on. But we often put in mechanisms um, for the purchaser to dispute items in the effective date account, and, and if it cannot be resolved, to go to a third party to resolve it. Uh, because believe it or not, you know, even with the uh, the, the IFRS rules and international accounting standards, is there's so much room for interpretation and, 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 and movement and how you treat certain line items. There's, there's, there's often these types of, of disputes. So, I mean, you, you'll get a sense that from, from what I'm telling you that closing accounts, number one, it's a costly affair because you've got to get your orders in, auditors in again to do this, this, this uh, audit. Um, it's a time-consuming mechanism and, and it, does, it does allow for quite a lot of potential disputes. But you know, it's, a, it's a good mechanism to use just to keep everybody honest. And, and that leads me to the, the last item I want to talk about, uh, which is uh, lockbox mechanisms. And you know, it's, it's something that's been formulated almost as a response to some of the downsides of, 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 of using closing accounts. Um, how a lockbox works is, and I mean, there's various formulations of this and, 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 and intricacies, but in its simplest form, what a lockbox does is it says, when we sign this deal, we're going to take a snapshot of what this company looks like financially and, and we'll make certain calculated projections on what it needs between now until closing to function. Um, so what we, what we do is you, you, you do sort of a best estimate of where it would land on things like uh, revenue, uh, on profit, uh, EBITDA, or you know whatever the the, the valuation methodology uh, that has been used, and then and then what you do is you create a lock contractual lock mechanism in the sale and purchase agreement about that around that. So and basically what it says is it says from this date the company will declare no dividends. Um, the company will not incur further borrowings. Um, it will have a level of cash in the bank to run its operations. And that sort of cash is normally the projected cash flow needed to, to run the company for however long the period is projected from signing until closing. There, there will be certain what what they call permitted leakages, and you as the lawyer will have to sort of you know put these things into into words. Um, so, for instance, there'll be things like freezes on salary increases, uh, executive management bonuses, but there may be certain things that you would have to allow, uh, and these would have to be specifically listed. And and if you think of the term lockbox, essentially what you're doing is you you're locking up the balance sheet of this company um, so that things become a bit more predictable on closing. Uh, 
and the only things that would be allowed are these permitted leakages. And basically, when you come to the end of the lockbox, uh, it's like a warranty that the seller said, you know, this is what the company will, will, will look and feel like when you buy it. And, and if there are any uh, leakages which are not permitted, um, then that will result in a, in a price adjustment. All right, I'm going to pause there. So quite a lot of information, but I think I'm just trying to conceptually give you a framework um, on, on, on why we as lawyers are sometimes interested in, in the numbers that surround um, purchase prices. But, but let me pause for some uh, questions before I hand back to Mike. No such thing as a stupid question. <laughs> yeah, thanks, uh, Adam. It's quite a lot to digest. But uh, if anybody has questions during the course of the day or the next couple of days, you can always just drop us emails and we'll we'll answer them. Um, it is it is quite technical stuff, um, but it's really important that even if we walk away with an awareness of it. Um, that somewhere there is this thing regarding adjustments and different ways of doing it, then we've taught you something and that's great. Um, okay, well, if there are no questions, I'll jump into, into NAV adjustments. Um, all right, so, so if, we, if we contemplate a transaction, let us just say it's a share sale agreement. Uh, a, a purchaser is buying the shares in a company, buying the company lock, stock and barrel. And that company is trading away merrily in the ordinary course. Um, we, we have a, a negotiation period and the parties sign the agreement. Okay, so we start the, we start the transactional, the document transactional process with a signed agreement, a signature date. And on that date, we've agreed the price. And let's just assume on the, on the simplest um, set of facts that the price was based on a net asset value. And we remember from last uh, two weeks ago, net asset value is you go to the balance, you go to the balance sheet and you, you take the total assets and you deduct the total liabilities and you get to a net amount. And that is simply put what we call the NAV. So let us say, uh, that was the method of getting to a purchase price. Um, and that that price was arrived at based on a set of, 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 of annual financial statements. And let's assume in a perfect world, those were audited financial statements. Okay, so great. We have a set of financial statements. Um, those statements are a clear route map as how we got to the purchase price. Um, and what we then do is we attach um, the financial statements which is the basis for the agreed purchase price to the agreements, okay? And we say, right, these are our signature date accounts. Um, this is the basis upon which we got to this purchase price. Um, and off we go. We now start implementing the transaction. And as we've discussed, the, the business is moving, okay? There are, there's trading going on, there's, presumably stock being bought and sold, there's bank accounts going up and down, cash is flying around, uh, stock is being sold, uh, materials are being ordered, salaries are being paid, 
etc. Okay, and what we do is we say, okay, um, this these signature data counts, which we've attached, which provide the base against which we are going to adjust. Okay. If there's material changes in value in the company between signature date and closing date or implementation date. So we have our base on these signature date accounts attached. And we say, okay, uh, we recognize that this is going to be a trading period before we actually implement. And as Adam has said, we put some, we put some checks and balances in place as to what should or can't ha- and can happen in the business during that period. And often we'll put in a whole bunch of interim trading provisions, which, which make sure that the sellers don't do anything funny leading up to, uh, to delivery payment. Okay. Um, and you know, so, so so that's often quite a large list, and it can or can't be in the form of of covenants or warranties. Um, but what it does is it tries to achieve consistency. So what what you want as sellers and buyers is for no, as far as possible, no surprises and nothing unusual happening in the business between signing the agreements and delivering paying purchase price and taking delivery of the business because. Those surprises affect value, um, and where there's movement in value, we're then sitting with possible adjustments, okay? And we really want to avoid adjustments because it gives rise to potential disputes after closing. So we try and keep the, the business on an even keel during the interim period as far as we possibly can. But, of course, in an ideal world, all sorts of stuff happens, um, and we must provide for that. So how do we do that? We say, okay, um, on the closing date, delivery date, payment date, um, we're going to cause the seller to prepare another set of financial statements. And Adam has touched on those. We can You can call them effective date accounts. You can call them closing date accounts. But what's really important is that they're prepared in exactly the same method and are consistent with the signature date accounts that we attached right at the beginning. Okay. So when we're talking about consistency, the closing date accounts must, must carry the same accounting policy. So if we started with IFRS and our signature date accounts or GARP or something different, um, hotel industry, there's something called the Uniform System of Accounts, which is another set of accounting standards, another way of preparing financials. But whatever happens, your Signature date accounts and your closing date accounts must be prepared in the same manner, in the same consistent manner, taking into account format, policy, etc. Really, really very important. Okay. So what we do on the closing date, and often this is quite a complicated date, right? It might be a deeds office transaction. There may be some properties which are underneath it all, and they are determining the timing of closing. So it may be, you know, when it comes up in the deeds office, the closing happens. And then what on that day, the parties have to do an assessment of the company and what does that normally, uh, what does that normally take, um, take a form of? And obviously, the one thing that will spring to mind is a stock take in the simplest possible term. So the parties will do conduct, get often get auditors in, and they will conduct stock taking or asset verification. They'll run through the business, 
add up all the assets, um, inventories, etc., um, and they will. So, on, so that's on the physical side, okay. And a stock take um, is normally done in conjunction with each other. So each party buy and seller can have representatives. And the way in which the stock take is done is very important and is pre-agreed in the agreement. Okay. So remember, stock take is simply running around adding up lists. It's it's a, it's a it's a physical verification of what is in the business, um, and you make a list. Okay, but that's just the first step in stock tech. The second step is applying a value to those items you've, you've counted. Now, that value, again, is one of the very important items that must be consistent with the same method that the signature date account assets were valued at. So your agreement must determine in the stock clause how you're going to value what you've counted. Because we need to put RAND values to that to determine if there's an up and a down adjustment based purely on, on a stock take. Okay, and there's three normal methods which you can agree on. You can agree on depreciated values. So let us say I have um, a large piece of equipment in a factory. Um, the cost was 10 million RAND. I've depreciated at 20% per annum. I'm year three. I've depreciated by 60%. Uh, it's there, we verified it, um, and I'm taking it into the valuation um, at its depreciated value. Or we may say, no, 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 hold on, there's a, there's a long life left in this piece of equipment. I'm not doing it at depreciated value. I want it at, uh, some for the seller, I want it at uh, replacement value or, or net realizable value or market value. Okay, so when it comes to to this asset verification or the stock taking on the closing date, remember to determine how you value the assets and it must be valued consistently with your original set of accounts, your base accounts, your signature date accounts. Okay. Um, so obviously also then there's a whole bunch on, on, on closing, there's a whole bunch of financial um, stuff with the auditors will look like, it's not just stock taking, um, They'll run a set of management accounts on that day. There'll be debtors. There'll be cash at bank. There'll be all of that stuff, uh, um, creditors, expenses. Um, and they will then prepare the effective date accounts. Ordinarily, it could take a couple of days. Often, the parties give themselves a month. Um, and the seller will then ordinarily deliver those. And those could be audited, they could be reviewed, or could they could be simply management accounts. Okay, so again, in your agreements, you're going to determine the nature of those closing date accounts. And again, must be consistent with the signature date accounts that you're attached. So either they were audited, great, that's the, um, that's the most secure and, and best method of, 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 of basing adjustments on, but it could be a review or it could actually be management accounts too. Often people uh, run both set of accounts on management accounts without auditors doing it at all. Um, but that's that's a negotiated item. Okay, so we then, at the end of, uh, say, 30 days after closing, we now have a set of uh, effective data accounts. And what we do is we compare the signature data accounts, which was our benchmarking value, uh, against which all, all adjustment must take place. And we compare them with the, the closing date accounts or the effective date accounts. And 
we compare values. So we look, we go, we run to the balance sheet and we look at the NAV and we say, okay, has the NAV increased uh, between the two? If so, the price goes up. Has the NAV decreased between the two? If so, the price goes down. Okay. And of course, um, we ordinarily provide for quite a fixed and very clear roadmap as to how this process unwinds because you want to keep the parties within strict time parameters. Uh, there must be no gray areas as to how this adjustment process is going to play out between the auditors, et cetera. So, so very important to keep, to keep a, a quite a detailed process in the agreement because otherwise you just cannot keep a track on it and you can't keep it under control. Okay. Um, and then obviously after the disputes are settled, if there are any, or the adjustments are accepted, um, then the payment is made uh, often, and just don't forget, with an interest factor because the, part, the, the, the adjustment is really an amount being paid part of the purchase price for an asset that's already been delivered and the purchaser is sitting on a portion of the purchase price without paying it and, and, and with a delayed payment, we should, as a seller, you should have had it in your pocket. So remember to add interest on that adjustment amount. Um, yeah, so that's an NAV adjustment in a nutshell. Um, if anybody has any questions, fire away. We're a little bit over time, but we can just spend a minute if there are. If you're too shy to ask them now, drop us an email or give us a ring. Nope. Good. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for attending. Hopefully you learned something, uh, even if you just learned what questions to ask. Uh, that's a good thing. Good. So if that's it, uh, Jacques, anything from your side, Adam? Nope. Great. Um, well, thanks, everyone. Um, just to say, if anyone ever needs a good lock, box close, um, I've got a pretty good one. You can come and uh, chat to me. Okay, great. Thanks, Adam. Um, good. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you. Have a lovely day. Thanks. Bye.